Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable and successful for years to come. Today, we will focus on the financial challenges most medical practices have dealt with in the year of the pandemic. And what did we learn from the pandemic to pivot our medical practices financial profile to a more profitable future? Tackling those topics with me today is Jenny Martin of Jenny Martin and Associates Consulting LLC. Jenny has extensive experience in the management and oversight of physician groups. She provides con consultation services regarding practice structure, operations and growth, along with provider compensation and many other practice operations, including RCM and physician contracting and recruitment. Jenny is also our immediate past president of the NSCHBC. So Jenny, in the year of the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown, physician practices, they really had stalled, as we know, they had to uh, pivot quickly and send staff home. They had to stall elective surgery schedules and really try to figure out telehealth which and telemedicine, which is kind of what my uh, practice ended up doing over the last year, it seems, um, just, just really training on that and how different payers were allowing for that. But did this allow your clients to rethink their expense profile and determine what they need versus what they want when it comes to lowering overhead expenses and really looking at their practice viability? I think all of my clients took a very hard look at their overhead expenses and they tried to eliminate those things that were not absolutely necessary to keep their practices going. Um, they also were cognizant of the fact that they were gonna have different expenses in terms of moving to telehealth um, over in-person in visits. Um, the other thing they looked at was loans and grants that did not have to be paid back. One of the big challenges for them was the interrupted supply chain and causing them to have to rethink their traditional suppliers and go to a more creative process to get the supplies they needed for their operations. The internet um, took on a whole new meaning during this whole process. But one of the things that we cautioned them against was reducing staff in key areas, like the revenue cycle area. It was critical to keep the revenue stream coming in, uh, a lot of times from monies that was already owed to them. So if they had a fairly large receivable, but staff had been busy with current claims and current follow-up and had not tackled those things that needed to be followed up on or claims that needed to be Yes, I noticed that as well, that a lot of um, providers and practices, and especially the administrators, they just, you know, they, they're not that they panicked, but they just didn't know how to, what, what do we do now? You know, how do we continue our viability? Uh, and I saw many providers actually realize what they could do without and how to rethink, you know, not only their space as they had a lot of their staff go into a more virtual situation, but also I noticed that many uh, practices uh, now had time to actually have allow their staff to really work accounts. And that was one of the things that I was talking to with my clients I said, you know, you have some time now to really work your ARs, really work things that 
that a lot of staff say, and I hate to use the, I'm air quoting right now, you know, we don't have time for, but at least it's not more of a, um, you know, push to the side. So it seems like it was, if you had to look at a positive anywhere, it was really time to really work accounts, like you said, for money that was already owed. Another thing that I noticed is that a lot of practices, they did get creative uh, as far as allowing certain patients to come back into the practice in an in-person visit. I had uh, some doctors trying to figure out, okay, if the patient waits in their car, how do we get the, how do we notify them without having a staff running back and forth? And I had actually found on Amazon restaurant pagers, you know, that light up when you sit there when it's ready. And, uh, and so they were using those as well. We actually, I think, sold out Amazon on those. So just some, just some interesting and creative ways to, to keep things afloat uh, when we've had this last year. So I wanted to move on to something that you mentioned as far as uh, staff working remotely. One of the things that, you know, kind of was a, I guess, a, a light bulb over our head was the HIPAA protected information, computers, spaces for staff, and, you know, how to make sure that that is, is really a secure environment because a lot of staff went back home and they're some are working off their kitchen table. They've got kids around who haven't returned to school, you know, uh, spouses that are also working remotely. What do you tell your clients now as far as making sure that they have that secure environment? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I think there's a hybrid going on where um, especially primary care staff uh, or primary care practices, um, and you're right about the, the process to bring patients into the office physically when the providers felt that they needed to be seen. So if, if a, you know, it's a process of checking temperatures, checking to see if they had any symptoms, if they arrived at the office, but having them wait in the car. Another option was to, to use a back number for the practice. So when the patient arrived in the parking lot, they called the back number and then the staff used that same number to contact them to tell them that it was all right. And what happened is they weren't, they, they didn't wait in the waiting room. They actually went to the room. So they walked in the front door, they presented their insurance cards or answered any questions to update their practice head. And then they went right to an exam room. So that eliminated, you know, a lot of people in a, in a contained area. I think in terms of working in a bind or a HIPAA compliant space, one of the things that they did was to be very careful, or my clients did anyway, was to be very careful about the staff that they allowed to work from home. So the staff that was in the office was in, or they were in remote areas. In other words, they were very separated from one another. But the ones who worked from home had to show that they were going to that they were going to transact business in a secure area. So they actually had their attorneys draft a document that the employee signed indicating that they would keep the information under lock and key or at least away from the general traffic areas of their home where they had an area in their home where they could work safely. I think every practice that I work with was very concerned about that issue in terms of working from home. In, in terms of in terms of having patients return to the office, I think that that medicine is going to become a hybrid. I think one of the things that COVID did was to legitimize telemedicine. Before it had been kind of a yeah, telemedicine is okay, but now I think that practices have recognized that it can be very effective, especially in certain specialties. 
So whether or not the staff fully return to the office or they continue in a hybrid model is really going to depend on the specialties. A lot of the surgical specialties are really going to require that their patients be seen for obvious reasons, other than routine follow-up procedures, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think it's going to depend on the specialty and it's going to depend on the providers. They were all very concerned about the compliance. Yeah, I think I had the same thing. And I think one of the things that is going to be interesting, especially because the pandemic has lasted so long, is trying to, and I, I'm using words from what Seema Verna said when she was the director at, um, at Medicare, is at CMS, is basically, you know, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle when it comes to telehealth. But we're going to have to wait and see as far as reimbursements and, and some of the flexibilities that will be rolled back exactly once the PHE is ended. I think one of the things that is tough right now is like you said there was uh, many providers luckily your clients were really looking at who could work remotely and who couldn't i've got clients that didn't have a choice as far as everybody was kind of sent home and and trying to work uh, remotely and you're right i you know i was trying to when it was a, a remote option it used to be for an employee almost like a, a bonus if you were a long-term employee that proved themselves that you could work independently then you got to you know kind of uh, figure out how you could work part-time from your home and then remotely and then part-time in the office and now it seems like um, everybody has the option so I think moving forward I can see a lot of more I don't like to use the word creative here but Hopefully, what you actually, I like the word you use, more uh, legitimizing of the spaces and making sure that there, there is a secure environment once the public health emergency ends. Because right now, I think everybody's falling into that flexibility where, you know, well, we don't have a choice and this is all we can do. Well, once that stops, they're going to have to realize that that's not, that, that uh, excuse is not going to work anymore. You're going to actually have to legitimize that space. So let me move forward into uh, practices that are really, I don't want to say struggling because as you mentioned and, and we mentioned in our last podcast, there was a lot of provider relief funding that was pushed out. And so there were some, uh, and it really was relief, you know, able to keep employees and staff and, and keep um, the lights on, if you will. But how have you really talked to your and advised your client base how to bring in more services without really spending money to bring in those services. So something that they can find existing in their practice to help in that viability and help bring back that profit margin to their, um, to their space. Well, one of the areas that um, we actually previously talked about is to focus on your accounts receivable. Um, and I just want to point out, in terms of the staff that work from home and the staff that work in the office, I think um, the first thought is to send all your billing staff to work from home. But there are a lot of providers who want their billing staff in the office for a couple of reasons. First of all, to answer questions that patients have that are in the office. And the other is to give providers guidance when it comes to billing some of the services they provide. That being said, one of the areas that they can do is to focus on the existing accounts receivable. And as you said before, Terry, you know, some of the staff now have a little more time to focus on the claims that need to be refiled and follow up with the patient accounts receivable. Lots of times that kind of takes a back seat to claims filing and claims follow up and clearinghouse denials, et cetera, et cetera. But they had a little more time um, to actually focus on those things that haven't been paid. So it's services they've already provided. It's money that's sitting out there that needs to be collected. 
Another is to rethink how they provide care. And it kind of goes along with what you just said a minute ago. The practices need to be more creative. So offering convenience for patients by extended hours. You know, I've worked with some great primary care practices. Family medicine, peds that provide walk-in clinic, quote-unquote, hours. So say from 7 in the morning to 9 in the morning, a patient can stop by and see a physician extender, physician assistant, or nurse practitioner to treat minor illnesses. And it's very convenient for young families that have small children that, you know, get sick very quickly overnight even, um, and, and to be able to bring them to see a provider first thing in the morning um, before they uh, before they head to the office or go back home to work. So um, I, I think it's a great idea and it's a great practice builder. Um, also, offering extended hours. I think um, gone is the standard, you know, we're here from nine to five and we don't offer any evening appointments or Saturday appointments. I think practices are rethinking that. A lot of my practices have begun offering extended hours during the week. So maybe Tuesday and Thursday night, they offer appointments until eight o'clock at night. And the physicians rotate covering that time. Um, all of their uh, extenders, in other words, their um, non-physician practitioners are also credentialed with, with insurance companies that will credential them. And so, you know, you're billing for those services independently. They can evaluate the patient, they can prescribe depending on state law, et cetera. But um, it really, flushes out your, your provider base so that as you offer extended services, those times are covered without the physicians working 80 hours a week um, by the time they actually see patients and then complete their records. So I think that that's a great thing. Um, the other is adding Saturday hours. So um, it makes patients happier. It lowers emergency room visits or urgent care visits. And if, and if you've got providers who are in contracts where they're looking at quality measures, well, the quality measures is how many ER visits do your patients have. Um, so keeping patients out of the ER or out of the ED is really a bonus when it comes to those contracts. Some of the other areas that, that are overlooked, especially in primary care, I can't tell you how many family physicians and internal medicine physicians um, I, re, I visit where they're not doing the welcome to Medicare visit. The welcome to Medicare visit, depending on the area of the country that, that you're in, reimburses very well. Um, a lot of times it doesn't, it doesn't, well, it doesn't actually, it never needs a, a physician to do it. It needs a provider, but the provider can be, again, a non-physician uh, practitioner um, or an advanced practice nurse um, who's in the office. And it's a matter of you know, reviewing a wellness plan for your Medicare patients who are new to Medicare, that needs to be done within the 12 months after the patient becomes eligible for Medicare. The second is the annual wellness visit. So Medicare beneficiaries can receive this service once every 12 months, and it's a review of their medications, it's a depression screening, um, the status of their preventive health services. In other words, you, the practice has created a treatment plan for them or the provider has. And what are they doing in order to, to maintain that? Have they scheduled an appointment for a mammogram? Have they scheduled an appointment for a colonoscopy or whatever the provider feels is appropriate for that particular patient? It's something, again, that, that doesn't require a provider to do. The reimbursement is, is fairly great. And as we have an aging population, 
you know, the opportunity to generate a significant amount of revenue by providing that service is out there. It's really a convenient way to generate revenue, but secondly, to form that bond and that relationship with your patient. So those are some of the ways that I see that that my practices are looking at providing alternative or expanded services in order to generate additional revenue. I know there's a host of ancillary services and cosmetic services that many practices have gotten into, and, and that, that would require a, a significant a significant amount of time to explain all of that. And I think maybe that's in your in your future plans to have a podcast on, on what to look for and how to set that up. That is true, yes. <laughs> um, and we actually have a, a webinar next month with the NICHBC where I'll be talking about um, chronic care management, some of the management services on care management. But, you know, you're absolutely right about the the hours and trying to expand. Those are things that you can do. And we're, I'm speaking to the audience now and our listeners. You know, those you can, things that you can do fairly easily. Those are not things that you have to bring in extra, you know, expense uh, situations or, or machinery or anything like that. You don't have to lease anything. Uh, you just have to basically keep your office open a little longer. You know, I kind of relate it to, and this just happened last night. My husband and I didn't feel like cooking, and so we went to order on one of those apps, you know, DoorDash or whatever, Postmates, and one of the restaurants that we liked would closed at 4.30, and we're like, on a Sunday? And so it was just surprising, and I know a lot of, just relating that back to healthcare, a lot of, um, you know, practices that are still in the 8 to 5 or 9 to 5, you know, think about this. That's when people have their own work time. And so, as as Jenny said, we have to be not only flexible, but we have to speak to our client base. And our client base is, is not is for us, our, our providers, but for the providers, those are your patients. And to be able to accommodate uh, the, you know, 7 to 9 a.m. or uh, after hours care that you be, I mean, I don't think you'll be surprised how many patients try to get in on your last appointment before five. And so it's amazing how at one and one thirty and two o'clock, you've got patients every 15 minutes, but at five o'clock, you've got, you know, uh, 12 patients waiting to be seen. So if you can do that extended hours, that's, that's a really big deal. And uh, as we both have mentioned before, using your mid-level providers, so your NPs, your PAs, and when we say qualified healthcare professionals and our NPPs, we're talking about the staff that can bill directly to the payer. So this can't be medical assistants. They are medical assistants. So make sure that if you are extending your hours with the mid-level providers that they are qualified healthcare providers that can bill directly to the payers. And that are also uh, physician extenders. So that when we talk about that, that's really what we're, we're referring to as far as who can provide that. Uh, the other thing, and this just kind of made me spark our question before when we were talking about working the AR, one thing that is really helpful uh, to your staff, and again, I'm speaking to our listeners, when your staff is working the AR and they are not in the office, so they're working remotely and there's questions about a patient account and if they don't have access to everything from an electronic perspective, make sure that they also have access to one of your mid-level providers. I know with a lot of appeals that I help practices with and, you know, really looking at the revenue cycle management situation, I've actually for practices hired nurses that can answer medical questions, can help with those appeals that are not just about the administrative 
and contract language, but are trying to show medical necessity. So if you can also give access to your staff to help them as they're working remotely to a medical professional that can help them with that too, that's going to be helpful in, in getting your money in the door. So think, re, kind of rethink some of the things that you do with um, your revenue cycle management as well when your staff has, and, and I don't want to say everybody's got the time now, but because there's not the interruptions that sometimes you have on site, that does free up some time to work accounts and you have a lot more solitude or in your space to be able to really focus on what you're doing. The one thing I would recommend, and actually on a different podcast that I do, um, I was talking about this last week, I would recommend that you really continue to have boundaries of what working hours are with your staff or they will get burnout. I've noticed that a lot of providers and practices now that staff has um, kind of made it back to the remote working or that's what they're doing, they seem to be working 10 hours a day. And we want to be respectful of the fact that what, what do we pay our staff for? So making sure that they are working the, the hours that they would have been working had they been on site. So just keep that in mind as well, because you'll, you might have some burnout with staff there and not as productive if they're working, you know, 10, 15 hours a day and you're trying to uh, access them after eight o'clock at night. So just be, be um, cognitive of that. Just be careful with that. But another thing I wanted to um, kind of talk to, to Jenny about before we we wrap up this um, is when you were talking about some of the services that you don't see as far as the annual well visit and the welcome to Medicare visit. She was mentioning that uh, in the primary care setting, you know, also re when you look at some of the services, even in specialty practices, make sure that the one thing that these services bring as far as the connection to the patient, you have to think beyond. And again, I'm speaking to our listeners. You have to think beyond the public health emergency and the pandemic. And I love how Jenny said that this is to make a connection with your patient. If you're going to continue with telehealth, if you're going to continue to um, have that connection with the patient to offer services that may not be face-to-face -face, that may be covered in the future, it's important to have these conversations and to incorporate uh, these ancillary, if you will, services into your practices now, especially since you, you have the staff to do that. Uh, and I think that specialty practices as well can can take a look at some of this, especially if you're a crossover. So if you are internal medicine, primary care, the and general medicine, uh, again, and family practice that we you know we're speaking to you as well um, in looking at these uh, services. But one thing, Jenny, I was going to ask you, Jenny, is that do you profess to a lot of, or I should say, do you direct a lot of your clients to hire nurse practitioners and PAs and clinical specialists or does it really depend on their volume, et cetera, as far as, as getting a mid-level provider? I think it depends on the practice, Terry. Um, I actually have a large uh, primary care practice, family practice, um, that is not using extenders. But the doctors are getting burned out. A couple of them are close to retirement. And so I've had discussion with, with them again about the use of non-physician practitioners especially nurse practitioners um, in that particular setting. And so I think they're coming around to that way of thinking. I think they can add um, a, a whole new, um, what do I want to say? A whole new focus in the practice. So um, I have some primary care practices that use non-physician practitioners to do their, to do their um, uh, urgent cares. In other words, 
you know, patients who need to be seen that same day are normally seen by the nurse practitioner. If it's something the nurse practitioner feels that a physician needs to take a look at, the physicians are all in the office. And so she can redirect the patient to uh, a physician, he or she, because we have uh, men nurse practitioners, certainly. But the nurse practitioner can redirect that patient to the physician to be examined as well. And then it's quicker for the physician because the physician can address a more serious problem without doing all of the background. It's all right there. The nurse practitioner um, or the PA has, has done all the background, found out, you know, what the symptoms were when it started, um, all of the things that are important in diagnosing an, an issue. So it takes less time for the physician um, in order to address the problem with the patient. So there's a benefit to using. I highly recommend it. Again, depends on the practice. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that a lot of the providers out there that are listening to the podcast, remember that nurse practitioners and PAs also work independently and they can bill under your uh, supervision exactly what you do. And nurse practitioners in most states can bill exactly what you do only if they have a collaborative physician. You don't even have to be uh, in the same practice. A little different rules for PAs, but uh, there's a lot of options there. Let's just put it that way when it comes to making sure that uh, your whole practice is served. Also, you can, you know, when you're, as Jenny, Jenny was saying, when you're getting into uh, seeing patients for those complex problems, uh, your nurse practitioners and PAs can see the less complex problems and um, more access to the patient where they're not waiting two weeks for an appointment. So it definitely is uh, an option that you might want to consider in the future. Uh, okay, so Jenny, if you had to give one tip or a piece of advice to practices to focus on in 2021 to get back to that profit margin and just really what could we leave them with uh, that you think that um, could could be something they could build on? Well, Carrie, I think there's really a couple of things. The first is service. Um, making sure that your staff know how to interact with patients in a professional manner. Um, that's one of the areas that I think needs improvement in some of my client practices. Um, we actually have done seminars on how to be the best receptionist and MAs, how to how to treat patients with respect, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the first. The second is convenience by offering services that you may not that you may not currently offer. And that goes back to our discussion about extended hours or you know uh, urgent clinic hours um, staffed by non-physician practitioners. Um, and the third is flexibility. You may not be able to order your favorite gloves from your favorite supplier. You know, you may have to look around and, and see what pricing you can get if services and supplies are not as readily available as they were before. And I think, quite honestly, I'm very blessed. I have wonderful clients. I think they've all been very open to alternative suggestions um, on how to address issues in their office, how to obtain supplies, how to deal with staff. That's what my suggestion would be, or that's what my Yeah, I have excellent clients as well, and they're they've been very um, proactive and and really like, what can we do? Tell us just you know how to how to handle this, and what can we do to really um, not just survive, but to continue this uh, hopefully 
uphill and now we're getting into the the flattened hill uh, battle into the post-pandemic era. So I I appreciate all of that information. I think that's going to really help not only our client base, but also our listeners and uh, potential client base out there. So thank you, Jenny. And thank you for joining me today on the NSCHBC Edge podcast. We appreciate your insights. And I wanted to remind our listeners, they can contact Jenny at gmartin at H-C-A-N-W-O dot com or also on our website at www.nschbc.org and under the tab of find a consultant so that's it today for us everyone please join us next month may 11th when i come when i welcome back david zetter to our podcast to discuss money left on the table and medical practices and knowing where to find those revenue opportunities so everyone make it a great day and a great rest of your month and thank you for listening to the nschbc edge podcast Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge Podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.